want to welcome everybody and also those of you guys in the second auditorium over there. We're so glad. And those of you guys who are watching live uh, online as well with us at House Church, so glad to be a part of the big family of God and the bigger local family here of Journey Church. We're going to be uh, starting a brand new series called Open Doors. Could anybody use some open doors in your life, right? Anybody at all? Okay, a few people. This side of the, of the house over here, I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but I'll just preach over on this side. So if you're in the second auditorium, shift over maybe because uh, there's something over there. Uh, we're going to be talking about these uh, moments uh, that I believe God has ordained for us. And I'm going to go to the book of Esther. I really felt drawn to go to the book of Esther. And, and I was going to preach this series before the unshakable joy, but for some reason God just held me off. And so here we are. And I believe we're here at the right time. And we're going to go to the most, what I believe is the most famous scripture in the book of Esther. And you've probably heard it before. It's Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. This is Mordecai talking, and he says to Esther, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then he poses this question, and who knows whether you've come into the kingdom, whether you've not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before, for such a time as this? Let me just see some participation, those of you guys in second auditorium. All right, have you, have you heard that before, okay? I think we have. We've heard that saying before. It's one of the most famous places in the book of Esther. So let me just sum up the story of Esther if you haven't heard it before or you just need a refresher. First of all, we have to understand and we have to go all the way back to when the Jews were pulled out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. We call this the exile. And we know this because we've heard stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they were pulled out, and they were pulled into Babylon, and they lived there, and they were there for, what, like 70 years or so. And then some started to go back, and we had Nehemiah going back and rebuilding the walls that were broken down. We had Ezra go back, and some of the Jews went back to Jerusalem, but some of the Jews stayed in the foreign land. And so this story is set some years after that, where we find Jews who were still living in a foreign country. And so there was a king there that day in the capital of Persia, which Babylon had now become Persia, which was one of the, ended up being one of the greatest empires of all time, as percentage-wise. And the, the king in the capital of Susa, he, he holds this big party for days and days and days. And at the end of this party, he wants to show off his wife, the Queen Vashti, and so he sends for her. But Vashti does not come out. And he's furious because it makes him look bad in front of all of his friends. And it makes him look... In fact, if you read, I think it's chapter 1 there, they, they start having this conversation. Well, like, if she does this to her husband, then everyone else will do that to their husbands. We can't have that. And so he fires her as queen. <laughs> I didn't even know you could do that, but he does. And he gets rid of her. And somebody has the idea sometime later, what if we had a beauty pageant and we uh, all over the place and we found you another queen? And so that's just what they decided to do. And so they had a bunch of contestants come out. And one of the contestants is this lady named Esther. Now, she was very beautiful. She entered the contest, or maybe she was drafted in. But her relative, Mordecai, becomes somewhat of her beauty pageant coach. And he's coaching her along the way. After some many months go by, she ends up winning. She's selected. And Mordecai tells her this one piece of advice. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. 
Now remember, they are Jews in a foreign land, and they've been there now for some time, for, for really for generations now. And his advice to her is, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Now that becomes extremely important because the whole story of the book hinges upon this one thing. Now enter a guy named Haman. How many of you guys know that every good story needs a villain, right? So Haman is the villain in the story. Although he's the villain, the king exalts him to become basically second in command. He's in charge of, of everything. He's exalted above everyone else. In fact, when he goes through the city, everyone bows when Haman goes through the city. He's that important. He's that honored. Except one day he goes through the city and everyone's bowing except a guy named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai just kind of stands there. Now, Haman, in his pride, he's furious about this. And he finds out who Mordecai is. He finds out that he's a Jew. And he goes back to the king. And this king was, he was drunk all the time. He was kind of half crazy, it seemed like. And somehow, Haman talks the king into writing a law and giving him permission to execute all the Jews in the land. He's like, this isn't a good idea for them to be here. Let's get rid of them. And the king, in a crazy moment, allows Haman to do whatever he wants to with the Jewish people. And so Haman goes and he rolls a dice. And, and that will come important later on probably in this series. But he rolls a dice and, and he decides how many months it will be from that day when the, the execution will happen. It turns out about 11 months later. Can you imagine hearing this as a Jew and knowing you've got about 11 months, right? And so that's what happens. That sets up the whole thing. And then that enters this moment, the word gets back to Esther, because Mordecai tells Esther what's going on, and that ties us right back into this moment in Esther 4, verse 14. Now hear it again, Mordecai tells Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, if you've not come into the kingdom for such a time as this, what is he saying? He's saying, what if God placed you here as queen because God knew this was going to be a setup? God knew that he would have you at the right place at the right time to bring deliverance right here now. Like you're, the, you're our only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're, you're my only hope. Like that's, that's kind of the moment that's happening here, right? And so uh, Mordecai says, you are here for such a time as this. And it sets the stage for a Kairos moment. Now, in... in the Greek language, there are, now this wasn't written in Greek, but in the Greek language, there are two different words for time. One is uh, chronos, which is kind of chronology, you know, chronological passing of time. The, the seconds turn into minutes, turn into hours, turn into days, turn into months, turn into years, turn into decades and centuries and millennia and so on. That's just the regular passing of time. That's like you can just watch the clock ticking along. But there's also this other word for time called kairos. And the philosophers would call this somewhat, they, they would try to define this, but they would call it a deep time. So that it was something not of chronology or, or a chronos time, but there was almost like this open door in time where something special or unique or a window of time would happen where something could happen in this time that nothing else could, that it couldn't happen in any other time. And so what we're talking about today is open doors. I believe God has open doors for us, that God wants to do things at specific moments in these deep moments of time that I really believe won't happen at other moments. I believe God gives us these kairos moments where he gives us an opening or a door into a, a, a moment in time. 
But the problem is most of us don't recognize that because we're living by the seconds and the minutes and our days, we number our days by just like that, by just days and the passing of time. And we don't have a sensitivity towards what God is doing sometimes. So you have to understand when the times change and what's happening. And we even see that right now. Like, I mean, yesterday it was hot, right? It was, for me, it was hot. And, and now today we have the rain falling. And, or, and, and the leaves were falling yesterday, kind of signaling to us that it is fall. How many of you guys like fall, the fall season? All right. Love, love you guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, how many of you guys have already had some pumpkin spice something, anything? Okay. How many of you guys are just revolting against the pumpkin spice? You guys are just the anti-establishment. Okay. Let's see that. But many of you guys, I mean, I love fall. I love the, the falling leaves. I love the rain. I love the, you know, the, the weather changing, the crispness, the, the bonfires. I, I love all of that stuff. I, I love it all. I love the hoodies. I love it all. And so, they, but if you go around long enough, you stick around Missouri long enough, what are you going to experience? You're going to feel like this, this piercing, crisp, cold air come in a couple months, Right? And then if you stick around long enough and through the snows and then through everyone being in a bad mood, at least most people in a bad mood, then pretty soon you, you, start to, you start to notice that maybe it's springtime. How do you know it's springtime? Well, for me, how I know is I can just smell it in the air. How many of you guys have ever just, you go outside and all of a sudden it just smells like rain. Like you just don't, you can't explain it any other way. You're just like, yeah, it's starting to become spring. And pretty soon you see flowers blooming and the grass starting to change and you hear birds coming back. And then pretty soon after that, it, it turns into, you hear, feel the heat and the hell of summer, okay? Some of you guys are just, okay, I know we're on opposite pages, some of you guys. Uh, the point is this. We can tell that the, the times are changing because they're indicators. And what I love about Missouri is you stick around long enough and it'll change, right? You, you, get, you get about three days into winter and then you're ready for it to be over and then you're ready for it to change. But it will change. And so we have these times and seasons, but we have to discern the times. Now, spiritually, here's the problem. I think so many of us are locked into chronos time spiritually that we haven't taken, we haven't paid attention. Remember I said a few weeks ago, that attention is a limited resource. It costs us something. You only have so much attention. And so to give something your attention, it costs you attention in other places. And I believe spiritually, too many people aren't paying the price of attention to be able to recognize what time we're in and be able to recognize those such a time as this moments in our life. In fact, I dare say that you've missed a hundred of them in your life. We're just because we weren't discerning, because we weren't paying attention to time moving and to time changing. And I heard it put this way uh, this week, that, I, that we have like this relationship with time. And time and change is really kind of connected for a lot of us. So in other words, most of us don't perceive time moving unless something changes. So... I know that time has passed when I look out at my vehicle and I see a little bit more rust out on my vehicle, right? Because that indicates something to me that something in the natural has changed that tells me that time is moving. I, I, look, I know that time is moving and that time is changing because I can look back to a year or two ago when I tried to grow my beard out and there was a lot less gray in it, you know, a couple years ago. So that tells me that time is moving. But what happens when you are looking at the wrong indicators? What happens when you're looking for the wrong things? 
What happens if you aren't noticing the right changes? That's what we're going to be talking about throughout this series, is noticing those things. And because time is connected to change, we just have to discern the times. And if we don't discern the times, we may miss our moment. And I believe as the big church today, I mean, across the world right now, we are in one of those Kairos moments. And I believe Journey Church is in a Kairos moment. I believe that there are window moments, door, open door moments for you as an individual during this time. But we have to discern them or we will miss our moments. Now, Esther could have just went past this moment, this Kairos moment, and what she looked forward as a tomorrow now became a today that just became a yesterday that just passed on by. But as we'll see in the story, she stepped into this Kairos moment, and God did some amazing things. And so I'm going to give you some thoughts for some of you guys who may be missing your moment right now, and I want you to understand some things through this story of Esther. And the first thing is this, some of you may be missing your open door moments because you don't understand this truth. And the truth is this, God uses the unlikely. So many of us have written ourselves off and we don't think that we have open doors. Maybe, maybe these moments come to us and we just think, not me, not now. But God, all throughout scripture, uses the unlikely. What, what's interesting about this book of Esther is it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Nowhere in this book will you find God referenced, okay? And anywhere in this book. And so in the book of Esther, I'm not talking about the Bible, guys. Okay, I'm holding the Bible. But you don't find it mentioned. So what you have to do is you have to look for God's activity underneath it all. And believe me, when you start looking for God's activity underneath the story of Esther, it is everywhere, okay? And one of the ways you can read scripture, Old Testament scripture, is looking for types and looking for shadows of Jesus, like reflected in the scripture. And if we were to do that, we can do that in several different ways, and we will throughout the series. But one of the ways I want to look at right now, if we could look for Jesus in the story of Esther, we would have to look to Esther herself. Because Esther becomes a type of Christ, because she is willing to lay down her life for the sake of all these people. Now what's amazing about that is in those times it would have been unusual for a woman to be the hero of the story. And, and especially to be able to read the story into this woman being in the place of Jesus, in the place of Christ, or as the hero of the story. But how many of you guys know this truth is so powerful that in the kingdom of God there are no less thans, right? Come on, I should have got some better amens than that. In the kingdom of God there are no less thans. And here we have a Jewish people, a whole, whole generation, a race of people who are set for extinction, who are set on the sidelines, who are looked at. And, and today we can look in our own society and we have the racial tension and we have all this stuff that's going on. Can I just tell you here, thousands of years later, we're still battling that, that in the kingdom of God, there are no less thans, right? And so since this story is centered around the story of this lady named Esther, I thought it would be great if I could find a woman who would help me preach this. And I know a woman. She happens to live with me, and she's my wife. Would you give Becca a big hand as she comes and she helps share? Hey, these thanks. We went to a restaurant the other day, and I mean, I couldn't understand anything the waitress said. I mean, seriously. No, it's kind of funny. He sent me a text earlier this week, and that's literally what he said. He's like, so I'm starting a series on Esther, and 
I thought it'd be good if a woman preached. You want to preach? I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll preach. And so anyway, um, I love the book of Esther. So does, is there anyone else? I mean, does anybody love the book of Esther? Yes. When I was a little girl, I loved the book of Esther because it's like a fairy tale. You know, it's this young, young girl, and she becomes queen, and then there's this villain. And, um, but as I've gotten older, and I've been able to appreciate kind of the nuances of the book of Esther, um, and especially, especially recently, I've just, she's just so relatable. I just find Esther so relatable. Now, not that I'm going to be crowned queen of a nation anytime soon, but uh, I can't help but wonder how many times Esther must have asked, why me? You know, I mean, think about this. She's just a girl living in this city. All of a sudden, she gets swept away to the palace. A year later, she's queen. And that had to have been very unsettling. And she might have asked, why me? And then later in the story, you know, we're going to see she has to make this really hard decision to stand in front of the king. And I'm assuming, again, that she might have said, really? Why me? Like, surely there's someone else in this culture, and the way that women are looked at in this culture, surely someone else is supposed to go to the king. Surely it can't be me. And, you know, I'm going to get a little vulnerable here and really personal for a second, but one reason why this has been so relatable is something that I've just recently been struggling with uh, quite a bit. Um, so, you know, you know how it is. I mean, I think I've even gotten up in front of you ladies and told you guys, don't do this, don't compare, don't ever compare. But it's so hard um, to not, and it's so easy to compare. And so there have been a lot of times, like at the end of a service, or, and I'll be looking over at the other ladies at Journey, and I'll be seeing fruit that they are experiencing, or I'll be seeing different things or different ways that they're ministering to all of you, and I'll think, I'm not doing that. You know, am, should someone else be leading the ministry I'm leading? Because I'm not that, I don't see that fruit. And I can't tell you guys how many times I've asked God. I'm like, God, why did you want me to be the pastor's wife? Why, why me? I mean, I am a math and science geek that is not a hugger. And I, you know, I mean, so it's like, in what world is that a good pastor's wife? And, you know, I've kind of struggled with this. And so... Just recently, we went to a conference in Michigan, and there was a speaker there at the, the lunch for the senior pastor's wives. It was very specific, and so I, obviously I went to that. The same speaker spoke two years ago, and she opens up her talk referencing that time that she spoke two years ago, and in her words, she bombed so bad, she was so embarrassed, she was so humiliated that she vowed to herself and to God, I will never speak in public again. And so for a whole year, she keeps this promise. And finally, through a series of events, you know, God helps her to break that vow. Uh, and she just shared with all of us ladies four things that she learned during that season. And one of them was basically just to be you. Prepare like you prepare. To, you know, to be the person that God created you to be. Okay, now I know all of you are like, really, Becca? That's the big revelation? But come on, you guys. How many times... Have you heard something a hundred million times, and then you hear it one more time, and it's like God puts weight on it, and all of a sudden, there's power in those words to break something. And so it was as if, when she's speaking, it's as if between her sentences, God was sitting right next to me and speaking to me. And this is why I really want you guys to get this, and I pray, I've been praying that while I'm speaking, God will be sitting next to you and making it personal for you. 
Because this is what God told me while she's speaking. He is, he is saying, Becca, I made you. I made you the way I made you. I love the way I made you. I'm proud of the way I made you. And I put you right here to do this thing. And will you trust me? And will you step into it? And I, again, I'm telling you, it was, it was the power of the Holy Spirit, but something broke off me right then. And, um, you know, I'm not, I haven't seen, like, the end of it. I don't know exactly what the next steps are, but I'm, I am saying that that chain was broken. And I really believe Esther had to step into this. She had to, to say, okay, I was born at this time in this place. I was even born looking the way that I did to be set up for this amazing thing that God has asked me to do. So in this culture where women are looked at as less than, she decided to not count herself out. And I think that was a, I think that was a big step for her, but she took it. So if you, if you count yourself out, you may be opposing God. And some of us have, have counted ourselves out from God's purpose and God's plan and God's open door. Do you realize you're in opposition of God's plan and purpose on the, on the planet? It's not that God can't find another way to do it or that you find another person. It's just that you, in that moment, you're opposing the purposes of God because God did choose Esther. God d- does choose us. And so if you counted yourself out, you may be opposing God. Second thing you might want to know about open doors is this. God's timing is perfect. And you see that all throughout this story. You see, and I'm not going to go into every instance. You can walk through the, the book of Esther all, and just see it everywhere. But everywhere we see God's timing and these coincidences. How many of you guys know in the kingdom of God there are no coincidences, right? And you see these happen to be in the right spot, happen to say this, happen to do these things. God's at work between, behind the scenes on all of it. One of those examples is in Esther chapter 2, verse 21. It says, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So here he just happens to be sitting at the right place at the right time. What if God has you at the right place at the right time? We kind of talked about that a little bit last week about God, don't take me out, but use me in. But what if? What if God has you sitting at the exact place at the exact right time he needs you to be for something he's going to do that you never expected? It says he was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh. Who comes up with these names, okay? I'm like reading these things and I'm like, I got to say that out loud now, you know? I mean, that's... I mean, it's kind of a cool name, but uh, it says, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So what happens is Mordecai just happens to be sitting outside, and he hears, overhears these two guards plotting to take out the king. Okay, it just happens to be at the right place at the right time. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. So Mordecai tells Esther, and Esther goes in and tells the king what Mordecai said, and gives him credit for saving his life. This, this becomes extremely important. In fact, one of the hinge points of the story. So later on, Haman is, remember, he's furious with Mordecai. He's upset. He's not bowing. He's, he wants to take his revenge on Mordecai. He's built this execution uh, device to kill Mordecai on, and he's getting ready to go the next morning. Haman is going to go in and ask the king for Mordecai's life. Well, it just so happens that night that the king goes to sleep, tries to go to sleep, and he can't fall asleep. 
And as he's there, he calls for one of the, the servants to come in and read the royal chronicles of just like what happened in the kingdom over the past few weeks or the past few days. How you guys know that's good sleeping material right there, right? So, so just imagine the king is trying to fall asleep. Somebody's reading him a really boring bedtime story. And it just so happens to be that the servant reads the place about how Mordecai saved the king's life. So the king decides that that next morning, he's going to go in and he's going to honor Mordecai. And so we see the king and Haman meeting the next morning at this banquet, which we'll hear about later. And just as Haman is getting ready to ask for Mordecai's life, the king steps over him and speaks in perfect timing and says, I want you to honor Mordecai because he saved my life. And so now the whole twist of the story, Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a parade of honor, right? And can you imagine Haman just filled with hate in this moment and humility? And he's leading Mordecai around, and everyone's now bowing down and honoring Mordecai. See, God's timing is perfect. Whatever you're going through right now, the, the hardest thing for us to do is to trust God's timing. We, we, we would like, I mean, we like it when God does stuff. We just like to control when he does stuff, right? But God's timing is perfect. I like what John Maxwell says about this and talking about just timing and how we interact with it. He kind of gives some different, uh, different ways to look at it, and he puts it this way. Wrong action plus the wrong time equals disaster. Have you guys have ever had that happen in your life where you did the wrong thing at the wrong time and you made a big mess, Okay. That's what happens sometimes when we try to act out of God's timing. But then there's a, another way to look at it, and he says it this way, right action at the wrong time equals resistance. And I think this is where a lot of people live. We're doing the right thing. We're trying to do the right thing, but we're doing it in the wrong time. We're doing the right thing in the wrong season, and we have resistance. Listen, if you're experiencing frustration and resistance right now, could it be not, it may be that you're not opposing the enemy, but you may be opposing God's timing. You may be finding this friction because you're trying to do the right thing, and God says, not yet. God says, I'm going to set things up in my timing. Be, be patient. All right, then we have a next one, which is wrong action at the right time equals a mistake. Many of us have lived there before. It's like, you had the right time, you should do the right thing, but you did the wrong thing at the right time, and now you got a mistake. And then finally, we have the right, time, right thing at the right time equals what? It's success, it's fruit, however you want to look at it. So the key is trying to get in God's timing. What, what am I saying? I'm saying if you try to plant a crop in the winter, you're probably going to be frustrated because it's probably going to die. You're going to waste time, you're going to waste seed, you're going to waste money, you're going to waste energy trying to plant the wrong crop in the wrong season. And yet so many of us are doing that Again, Kairos moments are open door moments that God, that God puts in just the perfect place. God's timing is perfect. And if you're trying to force God's timing, what you're trying to do is you're trying to be God. And I think there are too many of us trying to be God instead of let God be God. You realize that it's a lot more tempting for us to try to be God than it is to trust God. Because trusting God is hard. I mean, in the end, we'll find out that trying to be God is harder, but trusting God is hard, and so we'd rather just skip to that and try to control it ourselves. And the, and the way we do that is, is, is here's how we normally do that. We'll, we'll have these things that we think are godly things, and we'll put them up, and we'll say, we'll, we'll take a piece of paper, and we'll write out everything that we want from God, and we'll hand it to God, and we'll ask God to sign off on it. 
Say, God, here's all the things that I want. Sign off. These are good things. These are God things. These are things. But, but really what God asks for us is he asks for us to sign the bottom of the piece of paper while it's still blank. And God says, let me fill it in when I want, how I want. That's called trust. It's controlling when we, when we come and we, we write out all these things and we say, God, please put your signature. It's trust when we sign our name at the bottom and say, God, let me know what you fill in. God's timing is perfect. His, his timing is perfect. I don't have to look too far, but even to look back to last week. Last week I preached on trials. I preached on, you know, how to have joy in a trial. And after one of the services, I walked out and I didn't even get out of the auditorium and a young man approached me. And he said to me, he said, that the message really was, it spoke to me, it meant a lot to me, it was powerful and all this stuff. And I found out in talking with him that his brother had passed away the Wednesday before last weekend. God had him at the right message, the right time, the right place. Now during that service, Alicia Ewing, uh, she came up and she said she had uh, something that God had laid on her heart. I felt confirmation that was right. I let her come up and share that during that service. And it was a scripture and it was an illustration of God, you know, carrying us and, and his arms being open wide. And, and it had just so happened. Remember, there's no coincidences in God, right? So it just so happens as I'm talking with that young man about his, his brother had just passed away from cancer, I believe, that it just so happened that Alicia walked right up into that conversation. And he looked over and he said, where did you get that that you shared? Because that was so powerful. And she began to share how that was the exact thing that God shared with her while she was going through the loss of a loved one to cancer. She began to pray over him right there. She prayed over him. She walked away. The young man immediately turned to me and said, what do I have to do to give my life to Jesus? And right back there after the service, I led him in the prayer to surrender his heart to Jesus. God's timing is perfect. I can't make that up. Yeah, come on, give God some praise for that. I, I can't make that up. How many of you guys know I couldn't set up all those details even if I tried? There's no way you could do that. But God's timing is perfect. Okay, let me give you the last thing, and, the, and that's this. God's purposes require God-ordained risks. God's purposes require God-ordained risk. Give my wife a big hand as she comes back up and she helps me preach one more time. So pretend with me a little bit. Pretend that we're Esther and we are just about to go and stand in front of this king. Um, in my researching this week, I found some very interesting things. Let's just think about how huge of a risk this was for her. First of all, for those of you that might not know the story, uh, Esther tells Mordecai, there is this law that if you approach the king without being invited, that you can be put to death unless he extends the golden scepter. And so that's obviously a really big thing. That in and of itself would be enough to um, put fear into her heart. But she also communicates to Mordecai a little insecurity she has. She says, I haven't been called up to the king in a month. And so she doesn't even know, does the king even want me anymore? I mean, he hasn't even asked to see me in a month. And another thing, which I thought was kind of interesting, and I mean, I think last night I said it was funny. I guess it's not really funny. But um, this king historically was known for his horrible raging 
uh, irrational temper. Um, there is a historical record that talks about how he had some builders uh, build a bridge across a sea or river or something, and a storm blew it out, destroyed it. And so he had all of those builders executed immediately. Then he had soldiers take whips and chains and go whip the sea to punish the sea for um, destroying his bridge. And so this guy is crazy, and he just flies off the handle just whenever. And then, think about this with me, guys. Queen Vashti, at the beginning of our story, she was removed, whatever that means, um, because she disobeyed the king's command, right? That's, a, that's what Esther's about to do. She's about to disobey the king's command, which is exactly why the previous queen was taken away. So I want to outline all this because this was a huge God risk she was taking. But she, I believe she knew it, and she was able to step into it. And so <clears throat> here's the big moment. So it's uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, she wants to look like really, really good, okay, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So, phew, you know, I'm sure Esther's very relieved at this point. And so she says, well, my wish is that you and Haman come to a banquet that I've prepared. And so they go immediately to this banquet, and the king is, you know, smitten by her. And he's like, all right, Esther, we're here. What do you want? What is, what is uh, your request? And she said, all right, if I found favor in your sight, my request is that you and Haman come to a banquet I prepared tomorrow. And then tomorrow I will tell you what I want. Uh, nobody can agree why Esther does this. Some people think she chickened out. Some people think that she did that on purpose to kind of butter up the king. But again, God's timing is perfect. I mean, I was reading uh, one commentator that thinks that that's the reason the king couldn't sleep that night is because Esther had said, I'll tell you tomorrow what it is I want. So anyway, I mean, we don't know that for sure, but I just thought that was really interesting. So they come to the, that second banquet, and he's like, what is your request? What is your petition? He's like ready to give her anything at this point. And she says, well, my, my request is my life, and my petition is the life of my people. And she's like, for, you know, I'm a Jew, and this wicked Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And so, you know, the king is furious, and he takes care of Haman, and he uh, helps Mordecai and Esther save the Jewish people. So she does it. She does this big thing. She takes this big God risk, and she walks through this open door. Okay, so three or four years ago, I had this vision. Um, we have, Sean and I have five children. Our oldest is our son, and then we have four daughters right after that. Now, we had the first four kids in five years, I need some kind of exclamation from you guys for that. Just thank you. That's, that's better. Um, and then there was a six-year gap, and then we had our last child, our fourth daughter. So those middle three girls, they were so close in age that a lot of times they were going through some of the same things. And I just explained that to explain why I was praying for those specific three daughters. And all of a sudden, um, God gives me this vision of my three daughters, and it's God sitting on his throne and my three daughters are surrounding him on the throne. Now, 
I need to give you a little bit of warning. This vision is a little strange, okay, because my daughters didn't look like my daughters. They looked like dogs. Um, <laughs> I told you it was a little strange. You'll get it here in a second. Um, and so one of my daughters is standing um, to the left of God's throne, and she is, she's kind of like a German shepherd. So she's standing, standing up, stock still, staring ahead, super tense, super ready. Like the second God gives her a command, she's off, and she's going to do it. And that's good. She's being very receptive, but she's not resting. She's not at peace. She's very, very, very tense, waiting. Um, and then the second daughter is like a little wiggly golden retriever puppy, just sitting on God's lap. And, you know, God is smiling and laughing, and she's wiggling all around. She keeps trying to jump off his lap, and he'll catch her and pull her back, and she's jumping off, and he catches her and pulls her back. And the idea is that she's just ready. She is ready for whatever God says, and if God takes a little too long to tell her, she's going to jump off and do it anyway. You know, I mean, and so, and then my third daughter is on Jesus' right, and she's curled up in a ball, completely asleep, and totally at rest, totally comfortable, um, which is wonderful, but the implication was that she is not moving. She's going to stay right there where it's comfortable, and she is not leaving this happy, comfortable place. And that was it. That was my vision. And back then, it really actually helped me a lot. I shared it with my daughters. It helped them a lot. It helped me see strengths that they had and also helped me help them kind of steer, you know. But as I was preparing this message this week, I thought of that vision again, and I thought, that's just what we need. You know, when we're facing a big risk or when we are walking through our life and we're looking for those doors, we need to be receptive and we need to be ready, right? So we need to be listening for God to give us the direction to step in that door. We need to be ready to step in that door, but we also need to be at rest. That God will show us that door and that when the time comes, God will give us the power to step through that door. And I believe that in some way, Esther found those three things, that she was receptive, she was ready, and she did find, even though she might have been scared in front of the king, that she did find a form of rest. So she did it. She walked through that door, and um, she took that risk, and God used her to save the Jewish people. So it, when we have these risks in our lives, here's, the, here's what happens. If we pass on God-ordained risks, we may be trying to protect God. See, sometimes God gives us risks to take, and we don't take them because we're like, well, I don't want God to look bad if this fails. Like, like there are times when, when, you know, God directs us to pray for healing for somebody, you know. Or maybe you're in a grocery store, you're like, go, go ask them if they need prayer. Well, God, I don't want to. I don't want to pray because what if it doesn't happen? And you might look bad if it doesn't happen. Has anybody ever been there before? Let me let me just say this: God's big enough to take care of His reputation. Let God take care of His reputation. You just be obedient. Whatever it is, you just be obedient. I'm gonna have the worship team come up as we we wrap up. I got one last scripture and a story, and then we're done. And the, and the scripture is a very short scripture. It's in Psalms chapter 126. In verse 5, and it says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now, I realize I just got done with the series on joy, but I, and I've shared this illustration that was really helpful to me to understand this about risks and about this scripture in particular about sowing in tears, reaping joy. I was like, what, what does this mean? 
And then I heard this story that somebody told one time about people who lived in the Sahara Desert and how it's a really dry and brutal place, right? I mean, it's a desert. And, and the rain only comes in four months of the year, in May and June, June, July, and August. And so all of the crops for the whole year have to be grown during the rainy months. And then it's dry and it's brutal from there on out. So they grow as many crops as they can, and then they, they store up what they can, and then they have to make it to the next year. And so in October and November, the granaries are full, the, you know, the crops are there, they're having a couple meals a day, you know, everyone's doing fine, but then by the time you hit December and January, pretty soon the, the stockpile starts to become low, and you just have to imagine yourself as a father during that time and watching your, your family and your kids, and pretty soon you can only give one meal a day, and it's rationed out because you know you only have so much left to be able to make it. And that just has to be a hard place to be in. And then one day, as time has gone by and the family's hungry, it, it happens. The, this young boy would run up to his father and say, Dad, Dad, you, you never will figure out what I, you'll never guess what I found. And the dad's like, what? And he's like, I was, I was in the, the, the storage area and I, I, behind this certain thing, I, I found grain. I found food. We have food. We don't have to go hungry. We can eat tonight. And the dad has to sit the son down and say, son, no, you don't understand. Like, that seed is the only thing that stands between us and starvation. And we have to make it until the rainy season. And so they make it all the way back around with a hungry family and the dad and having a hungry child and a hungry wife. And he goes out. And he does the most irrational, irresponsible, unbelievable thing on the surface. And he takes that seed that could feed his family, and he throws it out. And you just have to imagine that the father has tears running down his face as he throws out this, what could feed his family. Why would he do that? It's because he believes in the harvest. He believes, as he takes a faith risk even in the laws of sowing and reaping in the natural, that when he sows in tears, that one day he will reap in joy. And I just want to encourage some of you guys right now that some of you do have an open door right in front of you. You know what it is. You've been uncomfortable taking a step through it. It may be painful. It may be hard. It may look like you're having to throw something away to do that. But if you know it's a Kairos moment from God, what you may sow in tears, one day you're going to reap in joy. Would you guys stand up with me? I believe that God is going to speak to us as we wrap up during this time of worship. Would you just be open and honest before God? Maybe bow your heads and close your eyes and put your hands in a posture to be able to receive from God. God, we want to receive your word for us today. We want to receive your direction. We want to receive what you have for us. Lord, and if this is a such a time as this moment, we want to step through the door. If this is a... a Hold on, this isn't your season moment. We want to be faithful and patient, God. Above all, we want to be in step with you. We don't want to be ahead of you. We don't want to be behind you. We want to be right with you because right there we know the closer we are to you, the more lock in step with you, the more peace, the more joy, the more fulfillment we're going to experience, the more purpose we're going to have, the more fruit we're going to have, the more, the more we're going to see people come into the kingdom, the more fruit in our lives we're going to see. The more lives touched. And so, Lord, we want to be in step with you. Help us to be discerning. 
Help us to understand what the times and seasons are. And Lord, I just speak that out over every person here in Jesus' name.